0: The truly good are those who believe in God and the last day, in the angels, the scripture, and the prophets, who give away some of their wealth, however much they cherish it, to their relatives, to orphans, the needy, travelers, and beggars, and to liberate those in bondage. Those who keep up the prayer and pay the prescribed alms, who keep pledges whenever they make them, who are steadfast in misfortune, adversity, and times of danger. These are the ones who are true, and it is they who are aware of God. Neil. This is gonna be a very interesting episode of made you think
1: which episodes are not interesting <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's true they are all very interesting. that's why we do
1: them. This one's extra special uh we've been we've been looking forward to this one for a while and honestly we had to it took us a little while to read but it's it's one we're very much looking forward to and if you couldn't tell from the podcast player title, it's the Quran that we're covering today.
0: yes and I think we mutually decided it would be interesting to cover this book primarily because there is so much discussion of Islam and its roots and Muslims and the relevance in international culture and politics in the US and all of it today. And it feels like, depending on which side of the aisle you listen to, there's completely different interpretations of this religion and this text and I think for for us and for this show, we always try to go to the source of information that's being talked about and try to figure out for ourselves what's going on. And so even though we're far from religious culture, uh, religious uh, experts, scholars, experts, Scho- scholars, that's what I'm looking for. Even though we're far from religious scholars, you know, we we wanted to actually sit down and read the Quran and see what it has to say.
1: Yeah, and so much of any type of book, whether religious or or otherwise, so many things can be taken out of context. And so, I know both of us have talked about this for a while. To um, we both want to just go to the source material because uh, you see, I mean, you see people say stuff all the time about the Quran, or you know, about other books as well. But uh, the Quran, just as it relates to um, just like geopolitical issues and. I think we've been curious about the source material for a while, and we figured uh, we never read books unless we cover them on Made You Think. So <laughs> we figured we had to. cover yeah. <laughs> we had to. We had to cover it's the it. only way it was getting read. Exactly. But I, I really like this translation. I mean, I think maybe we should not that I've read any other translation, but maybe we should just start with that. Um, I, I thought the author or the translator did a really good job, just in making you know, with, even with like the footnotes, because there were a lot of things I wouldn't have known without the footnotes.
0: Yeah, he does a great job of explaining why he chooses to interpret things in certain ways and what other interpreters have you know used instead. And he also gives a lot of context for things that are said in the book. And that I just found that really helpful. It led to a lot of other Googling and things like that. And especially with his footnotes, you get a, a little light history of the Arabian Peninsula around the life of Muhammad just through kind of his notations, which I thought was extremely helpful because on top of not being a religious scholar i'm not much of a history scholar either and so that that context was really helpful and, and it also kind of made me realize just how much middle eastern as well as asian and african history is just not really taught in america right it seems like it's pretty much all you know the history of white europe and that's sort of a shame because i feel like i know nothing about the history of this part of the world
1: yeah we have a really good sense for european history pretty much at any time in the last 2,500 years, right? I think we have a, just, if you went to school here, by here, I mean, the United States or probably honestly like the Western world, you probably have a really good sense for, you know, what was Europe like 2,000 years ago and what was happening even 2,500 years ago. But I don't know about you. Well, I guess you just said it. I Like we have no sense for what was going on, you know, in the Middle East or China or India in 570 AD, right, it's just not just not taught to us. So it was really interesting
0: yeah I was gonna say you basically get Egypt, and then it's like there's no other
1: history <laughs> in, you know east east of Europe uh, after that, so yep. and you're like, hey, there were Native Americans somewhere or all over the the North America and South America, but they were just doing their thing until you know fourteen ninety two when Columbus came that, that's when their history starts yeah. <laughs> basically
0: <laughs> nothing nothing worth talking about before that,
1: right, yeah, so there's just so many blind spots that we all have culturally and and I think. This translator did a really good job of knowing his audience uh, and knowing that obviously it's an English translation, um, who it's going to be for, and the things that they might not know, and what the blind spots are. Uh, It also got me thinking of I wonder how much translation, uh, well, I I mean, I I know there was a lot of translation that was done on the Bible, but I wonder how much of like modern interpretation is affected by that translation. Where uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure you remember this in, in reading this translation. There are certain times where he says, oh, I picked this word instead of this one because in this cultural context, it meant that. And I wonder how much of that was going on with the Bible, too, and where we think, oh, this text is, you know, this is what the text is, Uh, like an interpretation. It might just be an interpretation and not a translation.
0: Well, wasn't that in, I want to say, Power of Myth, which is what, episode four?
1: I think so. The meek shall inherit the earth.
0: Yeah, well, the meek shall inherit the earth. That was one of them. And then another one, which I guess actually means those who have swords but put them away. It's not really the weak, right? Yeah. I guess if you read more of the original text, it's a very different meaning than what we think of it today. We think of it today like, oh, the weak shall inherit the earth. But it's really like those who are powerful but choose not to fight.
1: Yep, which means something totally different. Which is totally different,
0: yeah. (laughs) Uh, But the other one, the other one, I, I think this was in Power of Myth too. May have been somewhere else. Is that depending on how you interpret some of the original text to the best we understand it, it may not be saying that Jesus walked on water, but rather that he walked along the water. Oh, interesting. Or by the water, and you know, it's possible that through interpretation and tweaking, obviously, to enhance the the idea of him as a prophet. You know, they took a looser, more impressive interpretation of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely seems that way.
0: Well, the other thing that brings up, too, is politics in translation, right? Which is that if you can interpret a phrase in multiple ways, then how you feel about the book and the religion will affect how you interpret it, I think. You know, as it relates to the Quran, one of those big examples is this idea of jihad, right? Yep. Where, again, depending on which scholars you listen to, it can mean a actual religious war, right? Like fighting for the religion or it can mean an internal struggle. Yep. And I would imagine that how you feel about it would affect how you translate the book.
1: Well, and taking it one level further, it could mean a religious war in the context of when the Quran was written, too as opposed to a religious war that you need to conduct at all times, right? If you look at the historical context, you might say, okay, like I can see why you'd word that as a, as a religious war. Uh, But if you look at it in terms of like, this is absolutely true at all times, right? Which is, you know, to be fair, there is, there is a, you know, something at the beginning of the Quran that tells you that, uh, that says this is meant to be interpreted at all times, but you know, it just, it's all what message you're trying to get across, right? It's like, it's like if you, what it's kind of in some ways, like, uh, how to lie with statistics, right? Or you can make the text say what you want it to say, just like you can make statistics say what you are looking for to. Yeah. There's a lot of interpretation that's up to the interpreter, which is, you know, I think why you need to go to the source material. And to be fair, we didn't really go to the actual source material, which is Arabic, right? We went to the translator's version.
0: Right. And not even just you can read into what you want, but other people will Read into it how they want, yeah, right and then that can affect the the message that's spread. I know this is a big criticism of you know the idea that Islam is inspiring violence around the world and one criticism of that is that well, it's not necessarily the religion itself, but it's people using it as a way to incite violence, right it's there's a big difference between reading the text and being violent because of it and growing up in a certain culture and then having the leaders in the area tell you that you should be doing this because of part of your religion. And we've seen that throughout history with pretty much every, at least, Abrahamic religion. Right. right? Well, actually, I take that back. It, we've seen it with Christianity as well. Yes, <laughs> That's honestly the only other big example I have is, you know, there have been huge periods of history where People are militarized. People were militarized through Christianity, right? It's not such a thing today, but obviously the Crusades,
1: the Inquisition, which is crazy.
0: Yeah, Inquisition. Yeah, it's like a lot of it is, you know, sanctioned by the religion, at least according to the people who are interpreting it for you.
1: Well, you could see that with nationalism, too.
0: Yeah. Well, that's another great example.
1: Yeah, where they're, you know, nationalism to some people could just mean okay like i just support the values of this place and in other people they could think oh i need to protect this place from outsiders outsiders meaning anybody who doesn't look like me could be considered an outsider right so there's yeah it's it could be used with any ideology basically it doesn't have to just be a religion socialism too i guess i should have that's probably also example a prime example <laughs> communism and socialism
0: yeah well I, and i think this kind of goes back to oh gosh was it elephant in the brain where they basically say that you know Religion is really just another set of ideas. We treat it as something special, but when you look at, it, or no, this was sapiens. Yeah, sapiens. Yeah. Right. Religion is just another form of like intersubjective myth. Right. There's nothing particularly special about it, just because billions of people believe in it and you know find meaning from it. It's like the most powerful set of intersubjective myths, but again, they're not really any different from other ones like socialism or. Nimbyism, <laughs> or like whatever beliefs you subscribe to, right? But yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen throughout history how ideas that can be innocuous in one generation turn to violent use in another, and I think that's part of sort of what swirls around a lot of the political discussions around Islam today. Is you know, you've got one side of the aisle saying like, no, it's a religion of peace. It's being militarized for bad uses. And then you've got another side. And this would be like the Sam Harris and probably Republican crowd. That's like, no, the root of the religion is violent. Right. And that's just it seems like a very topical conflict right now. Right. But each side is just talking over each other. And, I, you know, I think that if we were in a period of like the Inquisition, we'd be saying the same things about Christianity, right? And I I kind of wish or I hope that we can do the other books at some point in the podcast, too. I guess we'll have to see how well this episode does. But if people want us to do the Old Testament, the New Testament, too, I I think that could be interesting to look at as well. Yeah, I agree. They're, They're less topical right now, but they would be kind of cool to cover they're like 10 times as long unfortunately
1: but yeah and the, I mean the one thing that's been very interesting about these about because I think I mentioned uh, maybe in, it was in the bonus material but I, I have been slowly making my way through the Old Testament over the past several months mm-hmm. not anywhere you know not anywhere to speak of like I'm not 50% done or anything Um, but the thing that really struck me from that pl- and the Quran to be honest is we call them religions but they're well I guess it all just depends what you mean by religion but from my interpretation it's less about the well there's certainly myths and there's certainly you know stories and things being told but they are almost the, the Abrahamic religions seem to be all-encompassing in the sense that they're also legal codes right in a lot of ways right they're prescribing you know how to handle human behavior if if this happens then you should punish it with that right and it's so in that sense I can definitely see the wariness that people have, you know not just with Islam but also with uh, fundamentalist Christianity where the religion it's not so much freedom of religion in the sense that I can go practice my religion it's the religion's almost mandate that you also impose it on other people <laughs> and that's where things get tricky and we'll we'll definitely get into that
0: Yeah I, I know that's the big concern with Sharia law in general right exactly and and you know honestly with having people who grow up that fervently attached to the religion, trying to uh, assimilate in other countries like that, I would imagine is very hard.
1: Yeah, it's your whole belief system, not just like that would be like saying, um, like, I know neither of us are are very religious, but going to another country, and them saying, oh, yeah, like, business and money are not a thing. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, that's to us, that's such a fundamental belief since birth, right? That that is, that's just how the world works. Like there's money, right? And there's, like you make things and people buy it. And that's just what happens. But if you went to a society that was like, Oh, no, 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 we share everything. There's like no private property. Like to us, we would just be like, Whoa, I don't understand what's happening. I don't this is not a familiar world to me. Yeah, it'd be incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) Right. And then we may I mean, I don't know about you. I may be like, Well, don't you guys realize if we had money, like things would be so much better. (laughs) You guys should do it this way.
0: Yeah. And then we would create our own little community that uses money because we think it's better and, you know, avoid full assimilation, right? Like it's, it's not hard to imagine not wanting to, you know, wholesale adopt the beliefs of a state that you become a member of, especially if you're not deliberately going there, if you're there because of, you know, some sort of like refugee status where, you know, where you grew up, you might die if you stay there.
1: Right. And I guess where I was going with it was was slightly different was I was basically trying to say that this belief system is not compartmentalized as just a religion, right? It would be like right. one thing to say like, oh, okay, I can just practice my religion and it's fine. But it, and this is not just true for Islam, it seems. I mean, although it seems more true for Islam than than other religions, but it seems to be true of of like Christianity as well, where it does prescribe how to just act in political life as well. And, and then that's where it becomes tricky if you're trying to assimilate in a society that doesn't have those beliefs as its basis.
0: Well, that might be why we see more conflict and tension come from Christianity and Islam, right? Because they yeah. have such broad spanning prescriptions compared to something like Buddhism, right. which is primarily a private practice and is less of a, you know, th- there's almost nothing politically driving in Buddhism, at least as I understand it and have read it, right? It's really just a practice, right. whereas the Quran and as, you know, from what I understand of the New and Old Testaments, they're fairly deliberate in what they say about how you should behave and act. And I I think that may be what really makes these religions stand out in, you know, one, their breadth, but then two, their impact on daily actions, behavior, the politics of regions they dominate, all of that is that they're just so broad spanning in what they expect their supporters to do.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So the the nice thing with this translation is that the translator gives a great intro section all about a very high level of the history of Islam and Muhammad and sort of what was going on in the region at the time. He covers some of the high level concepts of the book and gives, you know, just like pretty useful overview i think one thing that stood out as incredible right for lack of a better term is that in mecca and arabia at the beginning of muhammad's life the religion of the area or yeah the religion of the region was just polytheism right kind of like a you know more like tribal religions there was some christianity and some judaism but it was generally that people believed in a chief god allah but saw other deities as mediators between them and him. And 10 years after, yeah, in in 10 years after, I think the first revelation of the Quran, the whole Arabian Peninsula had accepted Islam and all of the warring tribes were united under one state. That was basically an Islamic state, which is crazy. Yeah. 10 years. In 10 years, his message was able to spread to this whole area and unite tribes that have been warring for generations. Right. Like it's insane.
1: That's virality at like the top level. Yeah. Is there anything more viral than that? Like that is, that's way faster than even democracy in the U S right. Or, or I mean, I can't think of anything that was, that moved just that fast in terms of you went from a state of war to everybody is united as one state under one head and switched religions. (laughs) Yeah, that would be like if
0: in 10 years, all of Europe was Jewish or something.
1: Oh, uh, Yeah, I, 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 where I thought you were going with that is that would be like if in 10 years, all currencies were under one cryptocurrency or something.
0: Yeah, exactly. If all currency was Bitcoin or if in 10 years, all of the United States was not just communist, but like pro-communist. Right. And cool with it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really is hard to imagine something spreading that quickly. And to be fair, I think we've seen some ideas spread like that, you know, in our time, but we have the internet. Yeah. Right? Exactly. The the fastest the fastest that the revelations of the Quran could move is horseback. And we're talking about, you know, a, a whole imagine just the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Or just imagine that area and all of it coming to peace and adopting this belief set before the Quran is even finished. Right. Like he's he's still receiving revelations.
1: Exactly. That's one thing I didn't know uh, going into it. I didn't realize he was getting revelations throughout his life and that it wasn't just, oh, I wrote this book one time and now I'm spreading it. It was like he was spreading the religion as he was still getting, you know, more revelations.
0: Right. And, And we should mention, too, this is the big thing that makes or that, you know, stands out for Islam and the Quran versus Christianity and Judaism is that. In Christianity and Judaism, the Old and New Testament are, they're basically like stories about God, and they're revealed by God to Moses and Jesus um, and Abraham and, and other members in the stories, but they're considered those prophets, I think, interpretations and teachings, whereas the Quran is supposed to be literally the word of God. Right, so it's God speaking through Muhammad, and Muhammad is just writing down what God says. Right, there, there's no interpretation, there's no like recitation or Muhammad trying to explain the teachings. Like it is the word of God, and that makes it pretty distinct from the other two books, and may have been part of why it spreads so powerfully and quickly. Is that it's got like this extra level of seriousness to it, mm. and. I think you hear it in the book, too, because when you're reading it, it's basically God speaking to you. Yeah. Right? As opposed to reading a story about God. There, there is nothing really about God in it. It is just God telling you how to live and what to do. God is going into history and everything, and it's weird to talk about it this way, right? Because the you're supposed to kind of read it like the narrator and the speaker is God. Right. And... That's just very different from any other religious text, I think, that I've picked up.
1: Same. I, I was a little at first taken aback by that. But I think, yeah, there's no middleman in between you and God. It's no story. There's It's just God telling you. And the other, well, kind of related to that, but the other thing that really stood out to me in just that first little intro part was, I don't know why, maybe this was just my own ignorance, but I always assumed like that the word Allah meant something different than God or it was like something, you know, just something... I don't know why I thought this, but it it just basically means it means God. Like the the translator just Mm -hmm. translated it throughout the book where he didn't use Allah, he used God. And when you read it that way, there were definitely pages I looked at. This is certainly not true of the whole book, but there were certainly pages I looked at that I was thinking that this page could be something out of the Bible. Um, Just given that there was nothing on that page that indicated Islam. (laughs) Yeah, there was nothing that indicated Arabia or deserts or, you know, any anything like that. So that was just an inter- interesting thing for me was that choice. And, and I don't think it was a choice. I think that is actually the translation. But that Allah was already a god for the tribes, right? I think that was something that he had put there as the history. Yeah, It was it was just the chief god, typically, with these tribes.
0: Right. It was the chief god of their polytheism. And then I think that what made Islam kind of a change for the polytheistic tribes was that one, it's saying that no, these other deities that you worship as gods are not gods. It's just Allah. Right. And two, that the prophets of the Abrahamic religions, right? So Abraham and Noah and Jesus and all of them, like they are true prophets as well. They just aren't the prophet.
1: Right. We'll get into the prophet uh, thing in a second. But the other thing that was really interesting was uh, Muhammad was illiterate or supposedly. Right. Supposedly illiterate. That's one thing I would definitely ask a scholar about is you know, maybe like a more liberal scholar, probably. Um, What are their thoughts on that? Right. Because you're one uh, on the surface. It's like it's like, wow, I mean, how like that must be God who made him be able to write these. But on the other hand, it's one of those things that fits really nicely into the story and probably was great for his branding. So I might get some hate mail for saying that, but uh,
0: (laughs) well, we should check because I don't think Muhammad wrote it down.
1: Okay, he he revealed it. And then somebody else wrote it. I think
0: he spoke it. Let's do let's
1: do some googling.
0: We should check that because it also mentions in the beginning that true Islamic scholars would memorize the Quran, which I think was a kind of like you know considered a sign of respect or emulation of the Prophet, right? Because as I understood it, Muhammad had the whole thing memorized, and then he would speak it.
1: Mm, I fa- yeah, and I found the wiki page I was mentioning to you, so I'm gonna send it to you right now. uh, But yeah, you're right. You're 100% right. It was compiled into a manuscript later. Which also
0: makes you wonder, you know, what may have changed in translation.
1: That's true. And what motives did the translators have? Yeah, that too. Or not the translator, the compilers. All right,
0: because that, that's definitely a factor in the Bible, where it was compiled over hundreds of years. And it's probably part of why you see, you know, or at least I've heard that you see contradictions within it, especially as you go in. And, and there's contradictions in the Quran too, and I think we'll, we'll get to those Yeah, that, that stood out when you read it all in one go, right? Muhammad was having it revealed to him over decades, if I remember correctly. And he, you know, I, I think th- if you're looking at it over a longer term, it might be easier to say different things at different times. <laughs> right. And it, it sounds like a lot of it too is influenced by the going-ons in the region, right? Because when... As he's revealing this, there is a lot of warring going on among the tribes and there is religious persecution going on and polytheistic tribes, uh, you know, trying to cast out the Muslims, basically, Um, probably seeing them as a threat to their established order, because it sounds like Muhammad was really the religious leader of the whole region. Right. And if you had power in the region, you probably didn't want to give up your power to this you know, guy who showed up less than 10 years ago saying that he is speaking for God and that all tribes need to unite under him. Like You can imagine that if you've got some control in the region, you're not going to be
1: super happy about that. <laughs> no. And that you'd think, who is this guy?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, no, 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 no. Right. So it sounds like there was a lot of warring going on. and it, Some of the soras, as you go through the book, reflect those changes in the political climate of the region. And we should mention, too, that so the the way the Quran is broken up is it's 114 sections called surahs. And you can basically think of a surah as a chapter. Right. But the longest one is about 20 pages in Arabic, and the shortest ones are single sentences or single lines in Arabic. So they they vary a ton in length. And, And also, as the book goes on, they generally get shorter and shorter. The longest ones are at the beginning which are his first revelations and probably the most compelling ones. And a lot of the later ones are honestly very repetitive. I don't know about you, Neil. But I thought that too. I found once I was about two thirds through, there was really not much more new material. It was mostly reassuring everyone that they were on the right path and that the disbelievers were going to go to hell. And it kind of just repeats that in some form or another, almost every Sora after.
1: Yeah, I, I got that as well. And the cynical side of me was thinking that those could be when they really needed a a new revelation for PR purposes. Yeah, <laughs> I know that sounds bad, but that was just that was the first thing that came to mind was this is it's kind of like when a writer uh, puts out a blog post that you're you're thinking this blog post was just because, you, you know, you needed a blog post every day or multiple times a day. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you hadn't published something in a while. So,
1: yeah, there, that that thought came to my head where there was not really new stuff, whereas the earlier ones are pretty long.
0: Yeah, very long. Yeah. And it sounds like there is an element as it's going on, understandably, of people in the region questioning that Muhammad is revealing the word of God. Yeah. Right. Because there are a lot of uh, surahs, especially later on, that speak to that. And I, we'll get to that when we get to those surahs. But it does sound, you know, again, if we're going to be a little cynical, and I. Think we're both trying to do a good job of balancing being respectful and being questioning here, right? But you, you could wonder. It's like, all right, if you're being challenged as being the mouthpiece for God, it would be really convenient to have a revelation uh, from God right at the time when there are barbarians at the gate and your people might be wondering whether or not they really should be following you, right? So yeah, it's it's interesting to try to read through with both of those lenses of interpretation
1: yeah and you know i guess the other disclaimer i'll give is i was pretty and i guess we're gonna dive in after that but i was pretty impressed with uh like well okay maybe this is just the advertising of it that i've been reading of the quran but much of it is not about violence like much of it especially in the earlier sections is about uh accepting some of the other religions and i mean that changes as time goes on which we'll get into but a lot of the earlier ones, I remember sending you a text, or maybe it was in one of the bonus material things that we were talking about this. Uh, it was just a little surprising to me that they were very accepting of the fact that Christianity and Judaism you know, exist in the world and that people practice it. Uh, people of the book, right, is what they called it? Yeah, exactly.
0: It refers to them as people of the book. And early on, it says that you should let Christians and Jews practice their religion. And it also says that you can eat their food and marry their women. Right. Right. So it's it's fine to marry a Christian or Jewish woman, you know, if they're not of the book, then you can't. But
1: right. If they're a polytheist.
0: Yeah, exactly. If they're polytheist or anything.
1: That was a early the early days where it seemed about the polytheists versus the monotheists. That was the chief concern or the chief conflict. Yeah. And then it seemed to have changed from, okay, no, 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 not those monotheists, only our monotheists.
0: Only ours, right? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely shifts as the book goes on. So there must have been some additional growing conflict. You know, I don't know if it was between, and maybe we should have looked this up, but I don't know if it was more between Muslims and Jews or Muslims and Christians, but it does shift as it goes on.
1: It seemed to be more with the Christians as time went on because there were whole surahs about jesus not being the son of god yeah right and uh i think there were many times that came up where the quran was saying uh why does why does god need a son
0: right basically that the christians are wrong and confused and i think as it goes on too it starts to say that they're going to go to hell for being so confused right We'll, we'll get to those quotations as we go i'm sure yep but anything else in the intro we should mention before we jump into the actual contents um i guess one other thing on that actually is that it does stress that all of the prophets of Judaism and Christianity preached basically the same messages as the Quran. Yeah. And that it was sent to confirm their earlier messages. It just says that, you know, most of the things they're saying are right. They're just wrong about Jesus. That seems like the big kind of distinction it's making. Yeah. Which is interesting because in a lot of ways, the interpretation of Jesus or the prophet is one of the main distinctions between the three Abrahamic religions right, it is, as I understand it, and please somebody correct me if I'm wrong, it's Judaism, the prophet has not come yet, Christianity, it was Jesus, Islam, it wasn't Jesus, it's Muhammad, right? Yep. And that's kind of like the main crux of where the conflict between the three is.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's it's not Jesus, it's Muhammad, or it's that it, they're all the prophets, but none of them are the son of God. Yeah, that might be a, a better interpretation. Is that, okay, is Abraham, it was Moses, right? Moses was- Noah.
0: Jesus. Noah,
1: Jesus, and Muhammad. And hey, you're just the latest one of of a long line of prophets, but none of you are related to God.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I guess you're related to God, but you're not the, you're not God's son. Exactly. Yeah, that seems to be the the major difference. I, I guess the only other thing I, I wanted to point out before we really dive in is they they use the word uh and when I say they, it's just in the in the Quran, they use the word we with the W being capital. Yeah. And initially that confused me. I just I was thinking okay, I thought we, this is monotheist, so shouldn't it be I have sent down to our servant, not we have sent down to our servant. But I think it might be trying to show this is my own interpretation. I could be totally off, but it might be trying to show like the infinite nature of God that it's not it's not a singular entity and it's also not a plural entity, but there's no better way of describing that infinite nature than using the plural version of the pronoun.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure. Neither did I. And I didn't see a good explanation. The other interpretation I had was that there are other angels and things like that.
1: Ah, yeah, there are. Yep. Because it
0: says in the Quran that the angels are not the daughters of God or have any relation to God, but they are there, right? Yeah. Because there's the angel Gabriel and there's Satan and all of them. And so there is still a, you know, a supernatural realm beyond God, but God is the only true deity, right? And so he, he, capital H, he, God, could be saying that, you know, we, the collective deities, you know, influence, or not deities, but the collective supernatural beings affecting life on earth have sent down these revelations because Gabriel in particular seems to have a kind of like a relationship with Muhammad, not um, relationship, but he intervenes, right? It's what is the, there's one event where I think, Gabriel takes Muhammad from one place to another we have to find this
1: mm, that flight
0: yeah the flight the long night or something it, we'll we'll get to it but so there's definitely other you know powerful beings beyond god and so that that could be the we that is being referred to
1: oh his night journey right night journey yeah that's it yeah the the other interesting thing uh just, I know we spent like an hour on this intro but there's a lot here like, <laughs> I guess not an hour but like forty minutes on this intro yeah, it's worth it yeah it's awesome um the other thing that I was thinking in relation to that what we were talking about with the angels and and God it's almost like they absorbed the polytheistic world and said oh this is still here it's just they are not supreme beings right they're all yes subordinate to God
0: well that's uh. That's something that I've heard a lot about Christianity, too, Yep, is that the easiest way to get other cultures to adopt it would be to just take their deity and make them into a saint.
1: Right. And said, hey, this is still here.
0: Yeah. Who was what was the one in Ireland? This is my favorite example where. Oh,
1: St. Bridget, right?
0: Yeah. St. Bridget. She was like the deity of the Celtic religion there.
1: Yeah. Let me look it up. Let me look this up.
0: And so the Catholic Church just made her into a saint and they were like, oh, you can still worship her, but she's not God, God.
1: Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, some scholars suggest that the saint is a Christianization of the goddess, uh, the Celtic goddess, Brigid. Others say that she was a real person. But yeah, it's the, I mean, the names are too similar, in my opinion, too. They're the exact same name, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems like it would. Ju- it would be just adopted.
0: That definitely would be an easier way to get polytheists on board to say, like, no, 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 that person is still powerful and you can still respect them. They just aren't the god. They are on par with God.
1: And that way, I guess the families are the people who've been worshipping that deity for, you know, who knows how long, hundreds or thousands of years. They can keep doing that and still be compliant, I guess, with the new religion.
0: Yeah, which may be part of why it was easier for Islam to spread into India, right? Yep. Because if you've got, you know, like a Hindu pantheon, it doesn't necessarily preclude that, at least early on
1: yeah and then i know for india what that was when they started implementing the jizya, which was uh i don't know if that's actually mentioned in the quran but i i've read um like the history of islam in india just like a long i think it's like a website about it that was interesting mm-hmm. uh it's just that there were too many hindus for them to absorb all of them <laughs> right oh. <laughs> so they basically said okay you can pay a tax and keep doing what you're doing if you're not if you're not Muslim, but if you're Muslim, you don't have to pay the tax, right? And uh, I think a lot of people smart. converted <laughs> off of that. <laughs> we're, we're cheap people. Our beliefs are not worth more than paying taxes. <laughs> uh. Too funny.
0: Uh, all right. Well, should we dive into some of the contents of the book? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I think we'll probably just jump around a little bit based off the sections we thought were most interesting. Yeah. Obviously, we you know can't cover it comprehensively. And there's not too much of a linearity to it as well. So we have some freedom to to bounce around. But yeah, I mean, just right off the bat, we, we kind of come back to what we were talking about before, which is acceptance of uh, Jews and Christians. And there's this section early on that I thought was kind of interesting, where it almost says that you don't even have to be, well, I guess it's saying you do have to be Muslim, but you don't have to consider yourself Muslim. so it says uh they which i assume are the jews and christians
1: yeah that's what it seems like
0: yeah they also say no one will enter paradise unless he is a jew or christian this is their own wishful thinking Prophet say produce your evidence if you are telling the truth in fact any who direct themselves wholly to god and do good will have their reward with the lord no fear for them nor will they grieve so it's interesting because you know it's saying that basically anyone who dedicates themselves to worshiping God, whether or not they're a Jew or Christian, will make it to heaven, right? Or will, will be rewarded for it. And there's this element that comes up a lot throughout the book of expecting evidence, right? It's kind of very, well, it's weird because it's logically driven, right? So there's a lot of demand for evidence and saying they have no proof of this, but at the same time, it, it doesn't really apply that standard to what it says, right? It's like evidence is only necessary for things outside of Muhammad. And, you know, to be fair, this is God speaking through Muhammad, right? So I suspect that is evidence enough. But it is interesting that it focuses so much on challenging the ideas of others based on evidence.
1: The funny thing is, we all we all do that, too. Yeah, for our own sacred beliefs, right? It'll it'll be always challenging other people, whoever, whoever has an opposite idea or, you know, the opposing camp, we all ask them for evidence, but usually we have our, I'm not saying everybody does this, right. But a lot of, a lot of people. And I think everybody does it. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody does it just to definitely to an extent where you have almost, I mean, for lack of a better term, like holy people who in your camp, whatever your camp is, uh, who can't say anything wrong. Right. And anything comes out of their mouth is, is basically the word of God. Yep. I was having a conversation with this, with someone uh, about this, with someone about um, Jordan Peterson, where, you know, obviously we've covered, you know, his book and we really liked it. And I've loved his biblical lectures and, I you know, I think he's a brilliant guy. But that with that said, there's things that he says or, or that he talks about, which I don't 100% agree with. Uh, and neither did this person. But then this guy was telling me he was at a dinner with three other people who are also Peterson fans and who basically attacked him when he brought that up. <laughs> Um, it was about the enforced monogamy thing. Oh yeah. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Where he was just saying like, oh, I wouldn't have worded it that way. And like, I see what he's trying to say, but I don't know if that's the solution to the problem or don't think that's the solution to the problem. And they were basically like, it was like he attacked their mom or something. <laughs> so they got pretty, not, not like pissed, but they, you could, you can, you know, you can just sort of tell when someone's like offended or one of their core beliefs is. Yeah. Yeah. Is being challenged. The crony beliefs. Yeah, exactly. The crony beliefs. That's how he described it. Yeah, and I think so. I think you're right. We all do that.
0: Did you read that thing that I sent in the medley a few weeks ago, probably more than a month now, where it was a, a philosophy professor who was saying that Jordan Peterson and his crowd have basically ruined any discussions of postmodernism now?
1: No, I didn't read that. I saw that. I meant to read it. It's in my pocket, uh, but I haven't read it yet. It was interesting. It was
0: just like a Reddit post. He's basically saying that he teaches philosophy and. Now, whenever he brings up postmodernism, people just like shut it down and don't want to talk about it and fight with him on everything and clearly like don't really know what's going on right in postmodernism, which is a, kind of like a perfect example <laughs> of Yeah. You hold a belief so strongly that it's like people need evidence to challenge it, but you don't need evidence to believe it. Right. The word of God is enough.
1: Right. I mean, even the, the postmodernism one's a great example, actually, because there's Uh, We had this conversation uh, on an earlier episode, I believe it was the Foucault one, Mm -hmm. Discipline and Punish, but, you know, a lot of us, and I I would say we did that too, right before that episode. I mean, we definitely bashed postmodernism a lot and, you know, we still occasionally will make comments about it, but we hadn't read, at least I hadn't read up until that point, a single book by any of the postmodernists. Yeah. So, yeah, I was basically taking, parroting other people's beliefs effectively. Um, And, you know, to an extent, I think we I think I would say our comments about postmodernism have been moderated a bit since reading Foucault
0: yeah I I think they've gotten softer yeah because I feel like I have a much better understanding of it now and also a better understanding of you know what postmodernism says versus what modern postmodernism is exactly right and those are definitely different things and obviously that's a very relevant idea here too right because there's there is what the Quran says and then there is, you know, what practicing Muslims do. And then there's also what Islamic states say and do, right? And those are all they can all be pretty different things,
1: right? This is something I'd ask a scholar about. And it probably depends on the scholar, honestly, what their opinion would be. But I wonder how they reconcile differences in the Quran from the beginning to the end, right? So if you just read this yeah. section, right, like if you read this, this section where they're talking about. You know, no one like that, that you can enter paradise, even if you don't call yourself a Muslim, uh, even if you call yourself, you know, a Jew, and if you direct yourself uh, wholly to God and do good, you'll have your reward. I wonder how they reconcile that with some of the later passages, uh, which we'll get into. Is it just a matter of, you know, that the later passages were written more recently, so they are superior and that's the final word, or, you know, I wonder how, like, what's the hierarchy of the passages and the beliefs? Or is it selective that you just pick whichever one you agree with?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I want to try to find one of those sections because we've been referencing it a couple times, and we should just quote one of them now.
1: Yeah, let's just find
0: it. Yeah, so here we go. This is a statement of the truth about which they are in doubt. It would not befit God to have a child. He's far above that. When he decrees something, he says only be, and it is. God is my Lord and your Lord, so serve him. That is a straight path. But factions have differed among themselves. What suffering will come to those who obscure the truth when a dreadful day arrives? How sharp of hearing, how sharp of sight they will be when they come to us, although now they are clearly off course. Warn them, Muhammad, on the day of remorse, that when the matter will be decided, for they are heedless and do not believe. So you have to read between the lines a little bit there, but it sounds like it's saying that christians who believe jesus is the son of god are going to go to hell yeah which is very different from the piece we just read
1: exactly yeah so i wonder how that's reconciled and you know i'm sure somebody uh, if somebody listening knows uh, i'd love to love to hear yeah hear what you you know what the what the reconciliation process is like what the logic is to whichever one is a superior belief or is it just selective Um, uh, that whatever thing you're trying to get across you quote that passage
0: well and there's also
1: like With all of these books,
0: right, there's so much interpretation and further thought and other, you know, writings from his followers and people who came later, right? There's other books in Islam. This is the book, but there is more after it, right? Right. So some of it may come from that and just from practice. I mean, there's so much in Christianity that's basically politely ignored (laughs) these
1: days. Oh, yeah.
0: And that's kind of like the tough thing with, I think, any of these religions is that, you know, if this is the word of God, then any changes to it today in how you follow it means that you think God was wrong, right? Which I, you know, I, I couldn't really reconcile with being strongly of faith, right? Right. So I don't know how you can be a good practitioner of the religion and truly believe while also modernizing some of the ideas in here, right? Or, you know, reconciling the contradictions, right? I just don't know what that looks like.
1: I wonder how Christianity does it, Um, because always modern Christianity is, uh, and uh, obviously not all Christians, there are definitely fundamentalist Christians, but they, like, if you want to paint broad strokes, they Mm -hmm. seem to have modernized, you know, easier than Islam, but they went through reformation, right? And I wonder wonder how much, I mean, I'm sure that has a lot to do with it.
0: Well, I I have heard that a big part of that difference is the fact that this is supposed to be the word of God,
1: right? Mm, Like direct word, yeah, not an interpretation.
0: Yeah, so it's easier to go through a reformation when you're just reading stories about God and his prophets because you can kind of like reinterpret it and try to look at it another way. But if it's the word of God, that's got to be harder. There's no,
1: not as much room.
0: Yeah, I, I just feel like that would leave you less room to reinterpret it.
1: Yeah, and then that's probably, th- that makes it much more uh, difficult to change any of the interpretation as culture or the world changes.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like the only way you could is if you moved more in, like, I, f- I think you see a lot of kind of secular Jews or people who are right. Jewish by culture and, you know, family and everything, but they don't really believe in the supernatural side. And I feel like that would be the only way you could modernize a lot of the stuff in here.
1: Although a lot of the stuff in here is not even supernatural. Well, no, it's not. And that's the hard part, right? Because its I think it's easy for a modern, and again, I'm sure there's modern Jewish people listening to this, correct us if we're getting anything wrong. But if there are supernatural things, it's a lot easier for a modern uh, Jew to say, okay, well, I'm going to put that aside and just focus on you know the moral tenets of this religion. Right. Whereas in Islam, like that was another thing that really struck me was, yeah, there are some supernatural things, but it's mostly not. It's mostly political and social and, you know, how you should act with your wife and how divorce works. And like, yeah, there were a lot of things like that. And um, there just didn't seem to be much room for interpretation on a lot of those things.
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, aside from the descriptions of heaven and hell and
1: the,
0: you know, the, the angels and everything, there's really not much supernatural stuff in here. There's the night journey, I suppose, but
1: yeah, I and mean, that was in my notes too about the fire and, um, and heaven is like, I wonder just given how little supernatural stuff was in here, I wonder how much of that was metaphor too. Right. You know, I just, I wonder if that was more like, we, you know, we we're going to torture you. You know, I just wonder how much of it was like more literal than it might seem not not literal, sorry, metaphorical than it might seem and not like, Hey, you're going to go to a literal fire. Yeah. But it could be, right? I mean, that, that might be a very standard belief at that point in time, too, depending on what the original uh, religion was before that. Maybe that was standard.
0: Even within that, at least for heaven, the idea of paradise is very plain, for lack of a better term.
1: Yeah. It's it's
0: basically living in a garden with clean water and free food and attractive virgins, right? That's yeah. basically <laughs> it, which, you know, one, okay, that. Is pretty motivating. (laughs) But two, it's not like, you know, your all of your wishes are gonna come true and you'll be able to fly around and visit your ancestors and any of that. It's like, no, you'll just be in what I think you would consider like a really nice oasis. Yeah. Right. It's an easy thing to
1: imagine. Right. It's not esoteric or abstract in any way. Right. It still seems to play by similar rules to reality or earthly reality.
0: Exactly. There doesn't seem to be much supernatural about it. Um, Actually, while we're on that note of heaven, there's one thing that comes up in here, which I had heard recently somewhere else about Christianity that I didn't know of before. But the books don't say that when you die, you go to heaven. Hmm. They say that when you die, you have to wait for basically the, I don't know exactly what the term is for Islam, but it's, you know, when the judgment day comes, right? Right. It's like a day when everyone gets judged, right? And until then, it sounds like you basically just sit in the ground. Um, there, there's no going straight to heaven, and you you die, then you have to wait until that comes. Mm. And you know, it's something. It sounds like it's something that we would all know it's happening, right? It'd be a huge calamitous event, obviously. And so, if that hasn't happened, then everyone is still just chilling in the ground, waiting for that day to come. Uh, and I feel like the popular interpretation of heaven, at least from the the Christian sense is that, you know, you die and go straight there, right? That's always how I understood it. Same. And I think that's how most people think about it, right? It's like, oh, you know, my, my grandfather's looking down on me from heaven, but that doesn't seem to be what the books say. Interesting. Which seems like a pretty big misinterpretation, and I wonder how that developed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a more comforting idea to think that you go straight, right? Yeah, certainly. So maybe it's as simple as that, but it seems... I don't know. It's like it's like one of those things that's similar to large scale conspiracies. It's like, how does everybody misinterpret this? Yeah. Maybe there's more to it, right? That
0: would explain why burial is so important in Christianity. Right. Right. Because if your soul left your body right when you died and went to heaven, then you wouldn't really need the body anymore. You could burn it. But if you have to wait around until Judgment Day, then you kind of want to keep everything intact.
1: Right. It's (laughs) yeah, it's almost like uh What are those people who uh, freeze themselves?
0: Yeah, uh, cryonics.
1: Yeah, cryogenics, I think. That's what it's called, right?
0: Yeah, there's like four different terms and only one of them is right. I can't remember which one it is. I'm going to look this up. Now we have to know. I think it's cryonics. I'm
1: going to put... It's not cryogenics, you're right. It's cry... Yeah. Cryonics, I think that's correct. Yep. Yep. Deep freezing bodies of people who've just died in the hope that scientific advances may allow them to be revived in the future.
0: Which is really just, you know, religion for scientifically minded
1: people (laughs) it is it's like one day exactly yeah the
0: cryonics prophet will come and discover how to unfreeze you and then you know you will come back to life and be with your family again right (laughs) it's basically the same idea
1: actually what is the difference there's no difference
0: yeah there's almost no difference the only difference is that in this version they would take you know half of the cryonics people and just burn them because they don't get to come back.
1: <laughs> no, that's what happens to poor people. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> you can't afford cryonics, right? Like then what are you going to do? Yeah, <laughs> I guess
0: <laughs> that, that would be an interesting twist. If it turned out that there were people at the cryonics lab, judging people who came in and just selectively turning them off. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if Ooh. someone's rude in the line, yeah, you're, exactly. <laughs> oh, we're out of spots. <laughs> what does what this little
0: red line on my bracelet mean? Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, we probably offended more people in our audience with the cryonics thing than uh, than the heaven and hell thing, though. Yeah,
0: whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I feel about all of the. What is it? The. Um, you know, when when computers will surpass us and we'll be able to upload our brains, like Transcendence and uh, yeah, the like the Ray Kurzweil singularity, all of that. Like it's it's just religion for computer minded people. The idea that you'll ever be able to upload your brain to a computer and continue your consciousness is so absurd for anyone who's like thought about consciousness for more than ten seconds. Yeah, <laughs> it, it just amazes me that so many smart people buy into that idea.
1: Yeah, although I mean, it's everybody. I mean, it seems like there is some inherent need for a belief system yeah almost like well yeah belief system in the human brain and so obviously these people are not followers of the bible or the quran so they're latching on to something else
0: i I do hear that from a lot of my secular friends right especially secular friends who grew up religious yeah is that they'll say they don't really believe in god or the supernatural but part of them still wants to believe in something after this life right right because that, that idea of total annihilation is just so difficult to grapple with
1: although there's like um this is probably also just me trying to comfort myself with that same same exact thing that you said you have friends who do that but i do find not not that i'm saying i think this is 100 you know true i there's no way for me to know but like the simulation thing does seem to have some just some merit. Like, there's, I I, I mean, there, it's one of those like not useful beliefs, right? If you think that's true, like, what are you going to do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. Um, and there shouldn't really change your behavior much, but it's one of those things that like I haven't yet found the hole. Um, uh, and I might just not have read enough, you know, contrary stuff for it. Yeah. But it just seems like, oh, this is actually possible. And I don't know. There are times like, I mean, I'm sure you've at some point when you've been intoxicated of one with some intoxicant or another. Um, you've been like i wonder if that's true uh and in those moments it feels true but that could just be the intoxicant talking
0: <laughs> well it's like uh do you watch rick and morty
1: sometimes yeah i've seen seen some of it yeah
0: there's the episode where they go to the arcade and one of the games is like a life simulation
1: yeah right and
0: and morty plays it and then he gets to the end of the game and dies and then when he pops out he's like whoa what where where am i right like i had a wife and kids right <laughs> Yep. That's kind of a similar idea. It's like, oh, maybe when we die, we just get unplugged and then we're in whatever simulation we're plugged into, right? It's, it all, I think, cuts from the same cloth.
1: There's uh, there's accounts of psychedelics that I've heard where, uh, especially with mushrooms, uh, where and we'll get more into this <laughs> next week, but yeah, uh, where people live like months, like actual months right. in that psychedelic world, and then they come back and then they're like, whoa, what day is it? And it's like the same day.
0: That was kind of how I felt with uh, DMT, right? Where,
1: ah, you've tried DMT.
0: Never tried it. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll talk about it more next week. But uh, it was—it very much felt like it had been, I, I don't want to say like months or anything. It's just like a completely un- indescribable amount of time, hmm. which is, it's not like you're living out that time period doing anything. It just feels like you're outside of time.
1: Interesting. Yeah, and then there's no way to put like, oh, this was months or days or hours or whatever. It's just outside of that definition. Yeah, exactly. And
0: actually, you also really feel like you are communicating with God to some extent, Hmm. which is the weirder part of, I think, those chemicals. And I think is part of why people who do them find some of these stories and ideas more interesting. Yeah. Like, especially all of the stories about Moses, right? Because it does seem to allude to at least some psychedelic consumption, right, in the yeah.
1: stories. Well, I was going to wait till next week for the uh, this part, but it's relevant to Islam because he goes into a cave, right? And, yeah, you know, I could see there being some psychedelic connection. He also says, "Um, uh, I had it on one of the Google pages that I brought up. I think it was in the history one. Oh, here it is. Yeah. When asked about the experience of revelation, Muhammad reported sometimes it is revealed like the ringing of a bell. This form of inspiration is the hardest of them all. And then it passes off after I've grasped what is inspired. Sometimes the angel comes in the form of a man and talks to me, and I grasp whatever he says. Um, the bell part in particular is something that shows up in people's psychedelic experiences too. Mm-hmm. So there's I don't know. I, like, I, I mean, I can't say, obviously, I wasn't there. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't be like, it wouldn't be shocking, let's put it that way, if that was part of the revelation. And honestly, that wouldn't be necessarily counter to what the religion says right if there was no if it was because of a plant that like allowed you to see gabriel or whatever your interpretation of of that was
0: or that that's the way you are communicating with god right like there's nothing that precludes that
1: yeah although i would imagine fundamentalists on either in any religion would probably be like no that's not that's not what it was
0: oh yeah i'm sure that's super insulting to some people but yeah. it's also like if you've ever done a high dose of psychedelics i mean it's not hard to imagine feeling like you've talked to God right right and I think that there's I mean there's a again we're gonna talk about it more next week but there is a pretty rich history in humanity of psychedelics being a big part of spiritual life all right
1: yeah exactly um I have no idea how we got there from the Quran but I mean it, it was all related it's all related <sighs> uh I was trying to find my way out of that nested loop that we were stuck in
0: <laughs> yeah just because we have to be a little more serious than usual this episode doesn't mean we can't go on tangents exactly. So, the next thing that's kind of interesting is the definition of being good, which is actually what we read in the intro. Yeah. It's this kind of long quotation. I'll just pull out some of the snippets again. But basically, a, a good person, at least according to the beginning of the book, is someone who believes in God and the Judgment Day, the angels, the scripture, the prophets, gives away wealth, uh, helps orphans and needy travelers and beggars, helps liberate slaves, um, and We'll have to come back to that because it also, you know, allows for slavery. So we'll have to touch on that more later. But those who keep up the prayer, pay alms, keep pledges when they make them, steadfast in misfortune, adversity, in times of danger, and basically anybody who does that will be considered good in the eyes of God. And you know that definition of being good, I think, is fairly like inarguable, right?
1: Yeah, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty secular. Definition too, and a lot of those traits.
0: Yeah, very very secular definition of being good. Yeah. Aside from the worshiping God part. Right. But everything else is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Uh w- what I think is kind of interesting next is what it gets into around punishment for crimes. And it's basically code of Hammurabi, right? It's fair retribution for anything, you know, bad that happens w- with a caveat, right? So it says that if you kill a free man, then the free man must be killed, right? If you kill someone's slave, then one of your slaves must be killed. If you kill someone's wife or daughter, then one of your wives or daughters must be killed. But if you pardon someone for wronging you and the person who wronged you, you know, worships God and asks asks for mercy, they can be forgiven for basically anything, which sounds pretty similar to kind of like Catholic confession right right exactly at at least as i understand it yeah if you're truly repentant in the eyes of god then you can be forgiven for almost anything
1: yeah and they use the phrase uh like god's mercy or god is merciful yeah several times yeah god is most forgiving and merciful
0: well they every single uh surah starts with this line in the name of god the lord of mercy the giver of mercy right mercy is a huge theme throughout the whole book And almost in, you know, in many of these stories, it's talking about, you know, asking for God's mercy or receiving God's mercy, uh, which I don't know, it's an interesting way to frame it, right? This focus on mercy. I wonder what the motivation for that is, because it also says here, you know, you'll receive God's mercy for repenting for your crimes. But if, you know, if it seems like you were faking it or anything, God will know and you'll be punished even more so. Right.
1: Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is tied to, um, and and this is going to be very hard to put into words. So forgive Mm -hmm. me if I stumble a little bit. Um, But it's, you know, and there's been ideas that we've talked about in, you know, I think it was in the Jordan Peterson episode. I think it was also in the Zen episode, but there's this almost this fine line between trying to control your fate a ton and then also just trusting the universe or God or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Right. And there are events that happen both good and bad, which are totally not in your control whatsoever, right? I mean, if you have, like, an asteroid hits, you know, wherever you're sitting right now, like, you didn't do anything to make that happen or not right. happen. Or, you know, a disease or, you know, there's all sorts of different things that can happen that are not in your control and good things that can happen that are not in your control. Um, You know, like, just the fact that you were born or born in a certain place or to certain parents, that's all you didn't do anything to make that happen that just happened. So there's it seems to be like this dichotomy. And I wonder if that mercy line is like almost this idea of trusting the universe and that you can almost optimize. This is obviously a very secular way of thinking, right? So just that's the caveat. Uh, But you can like optimize your outcome by like not by following these principles and then trusting God and God's mercy to like give you good things. And the, the bad things that happen are kind of also part of that right? Or maybe they're caused by you and you mess something up. And if you correct something, maybe they won't happen again. There's like, it might be some type of, this is very secular. And I know I keep giving that disclaimer, but it's, it's maybe it's like an algorithm almost of like, if you do these things, good things happen.
0: Yeah. Or at least a way to make you mindful of why things might be happening.
1: Right. Yeah. Because they always bring up and Christianity has this idea too, right? Of sin. And you know, if you fully repent, like fully repent probably means you won't you know, you you understand why it's wrong, and that you probably wouldn't do it again, right? If you're actually repentant. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was just like it was a thought, and I know Peterson brought that up in one of the lectures too, um, of how that was an ancient Jewish idea, of where everything that was going wrong was God was displeased with with humanity, God was pretty vengeful, right? In those in that sense.
0: Well, I've heard that. I mean, that's a fairly common idea. I think in a lot of polytheistic faiths as well. Exactly. I, I remember reading something where it was basically contrasting the gods of the Indus Valley region, right, and the gods of Egypt, and the like the Indus Valley gods were much more wrathful and mean and all of this and the Egyptian gods were more peaceful and kind, and one of the theories was that the Indus Valley region floods a lot more and a lot more randomly, right, whereas the Nile is fairly predictable and calmer, and so If you're constantly getting flooded and having your farmland destroyed and everything, then you'll start to believe more that the gods are always angry with you. Whereas if you have a lot of great harvests and successful irrigation and stuff, then you'll think God's more peaceful. And so it's an interesting way to infer this supernatural proclivities from stuff you see in your environment. And yeah, I think you're right. That is kind of what it's suggesting here is if you're seeing a lot of things going wrong in your life, then you should ask yourself, what have you done wrong that you might be deserving this?
1: Right. And, you know, I think it's presented this way that it's very certain, like if you fix these things or you repent, like things will get better. But it could also just be like a useful belief that people who do correct these things tend to do better. And then more people will also do those things. Right. Even if their bad things weren't necessarily caused by that. But it's like if we see people who follow these beliefs do better in society. Right. You would probably think, OK, I should probably do that, too. Or I probably shouldn't do that because the text says I shouldn't do it.
0: Yeah, exactly. You'll, you'll be afraid of what will happen if you do bad things.
1: Exactly. And whether you think that's because, oh, this is like a, you know, sociological phenomenon or it's because God doesn't like it, right? It's almost like it doesn't matter mm-hmm. which one of those is true because effectively they're this, like from a culture or practice standpoint, it's the same thing.
0: Yeah. And if you believe that there is an omnipotent, omniscient God watching everything, then you can't really get away with anything, right? You can't hide
1: it. Right. And that's, again, that could also be applied to, uh, like, you would get caught anyway. So, like, I'm thinking, you know, pretty much every religion says don't cheat on your wife, basically, right? I mean, yeah. that's pretty much across every religion. And having an omnipotent being who can see what you do, whether or not, you know, it's in front of anybody else, is a good deterrent, too, right? Because it's you might think, oh, I can get away with it, right? Because nobody's going to know how would they find out I'm in a whole nother city or town or a country or whatever. Right. And you might think you're good, but then if, you know, in the religion they're they're saying that this omnipotent being is going to know anyway, God knows everything. It might deter somebody who has that belief and by doing so, right. They it, it might've gotten caught anyway. Right. So if you believe in this, then fewer people who believe in that would get caught versus people who just think they're, they're very smart and can get away with it. You know, some of those people will still get away with it. Right. But fewer people in the religious camp will, you know, have that happen where they get caught and something falls apart because of that.
0: Exactly. Which is a great way to make a society more cohesive.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not even we've even gotten to like the sapien style, like um, cohesive belief (laughs) systems. Right. Yeah. That are probably super useful for I mean, this whole region was just warring tribes, it sounds like Mm -hmm. until this came along and created a cohesive group.
0: So even if it is harsh right, at at times and in its prescriptions, it was definitely functional and probably made people's lives better in the sense that they weren't constantly fighting each other.
1: Yeah. And I wonder how many of these societal things were just things that were already being practiced, like the Hammurabi's Code style, like fair, here, like one for murder, right? Fair fair retribution is prescribed for you in cases of murder, free men for the free man, slave for the slave. Uh, I could see it going overboard. Maybe this is why it was prescribed. Like maybe people would have some one person killed and then they'd go kill like an entire tribe or try to. You know, maybe I'm just saying I'm just speculating, but maybe these yeah. practices were already going on because none of this stuff seems that earth shattering. No. On that standpoint, although some of the like divorce stuff and anti uh, female infanticide stuff probably was groundbreaking in some way.
0: Yeah. Some of that was probably new.
1: Yeah. I think in one of the footnotes in particular, they said infanticide was a fairly common practice. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because there's a lot of talk about orphans, too. It seems like there's a huge. You know, just a huge number of orphans in the in the region at the time. The fact that they had to get called out so much in the book, yeah. But yeah, I mean, in speaking of the fighting in the region, we should probably just jump into this next section because I think this is these are some of the quotations from the book that lead to a lot of the modern political controversy, definitely around the Quran and Islam. So, because this is, you know, it's not right at the beginning of the book, but it's early on, and this is probably when Islam is starting to spread more. And it's getting pushed back from the region because this is where God is giving the prescription to Muslims to fight for the religion. So, I don't know. Maybe should we just read through these four paragraph sections we have highlighted and then talk about them?
1: Yeah, let's do that.
0: Yeah. So, and these are from a couple of surahs, but they're all fairly close together. So, the first one is uh, fight in God's cause against those who fight you, but do not overstep the limits. God does not love those who overstep the limits. Kill them wherever you encounter them and drive them out from where they drove you out, for persecution is more serious than killing. Uh, Do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they fight you there. If they do fight you, kill them. This is what such disbelievers deserve. But if they stop, then God is most forgiving and merciful. Fight them until there is no more persecution and worship is devoted to God. If they cease hostilities, there can be no further hostility except towards aggressors. Fighting is ordained for you, though you dislike it. You may dislike something, although it is good for you, or like something, although it is bad for you. God knows, and you do not. They will not stop fighting you, believers, until they make you revoke your faith, if they can. If any of you revoke your faith and die as disbelievers, your deeds will come to nothing in this world and the hereafter, and you will be inhabitants of the fire there to remain. But those who have believed, migrated, and striven for God's cause— it is they who can look forward to God's mercy. God is most forgiving and merciful.
1: Yeah, those are powerful passages too.
0: Yeah, and you can really see how depending on the context you look at them and the preconceived notions that you come into the passages with, you can take them in very different directions.
1: Right, you can I mean on one hand you could say that any place where there are uh Muslims who are and they live among people who don't believe or, you know, persecute them and I guess there's no definition of persecution given here, right? So it's yeah, kind of up to the up to the reader to figure out what that means. Um, that they you should keep fighting, right? And you should not stop fighting. Uh, and you know, like, particularly that passage where it was kill them wherever you encounter them. Right. I think that's been highly politicized. So that's one interpretation of it. The other interpretation is that if you you know in this period of time Muslims were definitely a min- minority in that region and they might have been. Killed for their beliefs so it's basically saying Hey you should defend yourself and Once you you know once um, If they say here's the passage if they Stop then God is most forgiving and merciful Fight them until there's no more persecution and Worship is devoted to God if they cease Hostilities there can be no further Hostility so you know if you read It in another light you're it says Defend yourself you know to the point Where you need to and then you know don't go Overboard with it yeah And, And that you know that that can be read with A sense of restraint as well Right. Yeah, that's a tough passage.
0: Yeah, it's really tough too, especially when you play with the order a bit, because in the fourth passage I read, you know, it opens with this line, they will not stop fighting you believers until they make you revoke your faith if they can. And then if we jump back a couple of passages, it's saying if they do fight, you kill them. This is what such disbelievers deserve. So it seems like it's saying that they will never stop fighting you until you revoke Islam. And then it's also saying that if they're fighting, you kill them. And so if you're reading it in the kind of like most, I guess, aggressive way, then it sounds like it's saying that any disbeliever is always fighting you, right? Right. Because it's suggesting that all of the disbelievers, right? And, and here it's talking about the polytheists in the re- in the region, I suppose, right? Right. which I think is how we're supposed to interpret it, is that it's a prescription for how to deal with the polytheists in the region who are probably persecuting the Muslims for trying to spread this faith. Right. But if you're reading it in a modern context, then, you know, I can see how somebody motivated to do so could turn this into a prescription that you need to fight anyone who doesn't believe in Islam,
1: right? And that's... Or if you grew up in a region that was, you know, had like, I mean, how long has the United States been in Afghanistan or Iraq? Yeah, at this point, right? If you grew up in that situation where, you know, you see these foreign troops from somewhere else, right? And then you read this passage, <laughs> you might drive them out from where they drove you
0: out for persecution is more serious than killing. It's not hard to see how that can lead to it's
1: not a big leap.
0: Yeah, no, it's not a big leap at
1: all. Yeah. And that's I mean, I think that's part of it that um, it's just a complex problem, right? It's not like a It's not like, oh, they fight us because of their book or it's, you know, it's like there are um, and there's, you know, to be fair, there's plenty of people in those regions who don't go and use this passage as a reason to go fight, you know, or go on a a jihad or something like that. Right. There's plenty of people who don't do that. So we're not saying that everybody who lives in those regions (laughs) automatically interprets this passage as being, you know, their instruction to go do that. But you can see how somebody would make that interpretation.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a good time to reiterate, too, that we are not critiquing Muslims or, you know, Arabs or people from the Middle East. We're talking about the book. Right. Right. Exactly. And I, we're trying to read it like we would read any other book that we've done an episode on. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's easy to see how this can be taken in that violent way that we have seen play out in parts of the world. Right. Yeah. It was interesting, too, reading the commentary on this section, because he mentions it in the intro, that this is one of the most politicized parts of the book, especially this line about kill them wherever you encounter them, right? And the interpreter is saying that that's mostly about, you know, the people who were persecuting Muslims at the time, right, which is the political landscape the book was written in or revealed in. (laughs) And yeah, it again, it goes back to the, the challenges we talked about before, which is how do you take a prescription from god in 620 AD and then modernize it to a productive belief system because there's over a billion muslims in the world right right and obviously not everyone is trying to exercise the book line for line but it's still you know having an influence right and so how do you modernize it i think is a pretty relevant and topical question
1: Yeah. And it's one that, you know, I hope we can do a follow up, you know, with somebody who's working on that or or has worked in that. Um, I think that'll be a a great episode because, I mean, I have so many questions and I'm sure I'm sure there is a lively debate already in existence about this that we are just not part of.
0: Yeah. and The other part in here that I think is worth mentioning is this line that if any of you revoke your faith and die as disbelievers, your deeds will come to nothing in this world and the hereafter and you'll be inhabitants of the fire there to remain. So and this is a pretty important line, right? It's saying that, you know, one hey, actually I mean we can combine it with everything here, right? It's saying that all the disbelievers are fighting you and they will fight you until you give up your faith. Um this fighting is ordained for you though you dislike it. You might dislike it although it is good for you. And if you give in to them and give up your faith, you will go to hell, right? And so It's an extremely strong prescription to fight for the religion because, you know, everybody in the area is going to fight you because you believe in this faith. Even if you don't like fighting, you have to fight because God knows what's good for you. And if you give in and give up the faith, you'll go to hell. Right. And if you've bought into this being the word of God so far, like that's a pretty terrifying prescription. And that almost makes it easier to see how it could spread so aggressively throughout the peninsula in those 10 years. Right. If you've got a fervent group of people who think that, you know, they have to keep fighting for the spread and adoption of this religion or else they're going to go to hell, that's going to be pretty motivating, especially if the polytheists in the region don't have that same level of motivation. Right.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think that's a good explanation, too, of probably why they won. Right. It's one one group yeah. is super motivated and the other probably is thinking, OK, like, uh, do I <laughs> is this the hell I want to die on? Basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like you know, it's it's burning your boats, right?
0: There there right. is no going back. Like you have to keep fighting on for this. You can't surrender and return home. Really,
1: something that was that was uh, more, or sorry, less faith oriented and more just interesting life advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you probably caught this too. So it's from that same section, but it said, "You may dislike something although it is good for you, or like something although it is bad for you. God knows, and you do not." That just sounds so true for so many like life things. Yeah. Like working out or eating or like, you know, certain, you know, working. There's so many things, right? Where you probably are, what you think, what you like is horrible for you. And what you dislike is, you know, perfect, is what you should be doing.
0: Well, and that actually feeds into a section pretty soon after about intoxicants and gambling. Yes. And I, I really like the way it frames it because the, you know, God basically says, For intoxicants and gambling, there is great sin in both and some benefit to people, but the sin is greater than the benefit, right? So it's like, yeah, I mean, you enjoy this and it might be fun, but the sin of it is worse. Although I'm curious about this definition of intoxicants because it sounds like there is this rich history of smoking marijuana in Islam.
1: Marijuana and tobacco.
0: Yeah, and tobacco. So what is an intoxicant? Is it
1: just alcohol? Let's see. I'm going to Google this. Yeah. What counts as an intoxicant?
0: And that definition must have evolved too, because I know at least a couple of people who grew up with, you know, relatively Muslim parents who were extremely discouraging of marijuana and alcohol. Yeah. Although it's always hard to tell if that's just like a cultural thing that...
1: Well, that's what I was going to say is that in, you know, my family that's in India, almost none of them drink, even though there's nothing in Hinduism about alcohol but it's more um i think because the country was ruled by muslims for so long that i think it was just culturally just became not a thing anymore uh let's see huh it seems like it did it says some there's a there's a conflict over what counts
0: yeah understandably
1: yeah so some people so it says some some jurists classify all intoxicants including opium and cut what's cut
0: Oh, cot is like a... Uh, Stimulant. I think it's kind of like catnip or something, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I could be wrong about that. No, I think it is. Um, it says it's analogous to the use of coca leaves in South America. Oh, okay. Cool. So it says some scholars basically consider every type of intoxicant as an intoxicant as according to the Quran, and then others yeah. just classify just alcohol, basically, alcoholic beverages.
0: Probably depends on uh, how many drugs those scholars did in their youth, and now they need to exactly <laughs> feel better about it right
1: on this page it says some even uh take the concept literally and forbid only grape-based or date-based alcoholic beverages allowing those made with other fruits grains or honey this is however minority opinion
0: how would that make sense is it just the intoxicants of the time
1: maybe well i wonder if the actual word that it was in Arabic oh, yeah. was just like date wine or wine right
0: right because maybe that was the only alcohol
1: Exactly. I wonder if this word intoxicant is just a translation.
0: There'd be no beer back then, right?
1: No, there was beer, but I mean, beer was invented in Mesopotamia or supposedly. Oh yeah, you're right. Okay. Now some people say China. Then, I mean, who really knows where it was, but they've definitely found it in Mesopotamia. I don't know if it was in the Arabian Peninsula though, because I don't know how many grains they grew in the Arabian Peninsula.
0: Yeah. What would they have made it from?
1: Yeah. Well, I guess dates.
0: Although, you know, if they could, if they could grow marijuana, they could grow hops. They're basically the same plant.
1: That's true. There's a lot of lot of relation there. Uh, yeah, I guess they could do beer. Although beer uh, until really the, I want to say the 1400s or so, hops was just one type of spice. We gotta do a beer episode at one point. There's there's gonna be some cool stuff there.
0: Yeah, we should do a beer episode. Send me a good beer book and we'll do that episode.
1: Yeah, there's oh there's a really good one. Although it's prob- well, let me think about that one. I was thinking uh, the one I was initially thinking of that goes through the whole history is a little too um, popcorny. For oh, okay. For probably what we do, but yeah, I, I'm sure I can find one that that I have yeah. read that's good.
0: As long as it's not another smoke signals length history. It I won't was. be. No. It
1: won't <laughs> be. That was a long one.
0: <laughs> that was a long book, yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway, that was an interesting sidebar though, because I I mean this is something we always read about or hear about, right? That you're not allowed to drink in Islam.
0: Well, and this is probably, again, you know, an interpretation that or it's a line that is probably interpreted to the benefits of the people interpreting it,
1: right? Yeah, because the Persians did consume alcohol from what I remember reading about them. Um, but it's probably, as you said, those their interpreters were maybe a little more on the liberal side and, you know, in the Arabian Peninsula, maybe they were more conservative.
0: Yeah, alcohol seems to be the only thing they're all in agreement on because yeah. places like Dubai, you know, you can't get it if you're a citizen.
1: Right. I like the enter your wives however you please. <laughs>
0: Yeah, one, one, I mean, odd bit of humor in this book is, uh, and I, I love that he had the footnote for this. So uh, there's a line in the Quran that says, uh, Your wives are like your fields. So go into your fields whichever way you like and send something good ahead for yourselves. And in the footnote, it explains that I guess there was a belief in Arabia at the time that certain sexual positions were impure, right? So you were only supposed to have sex certain ways. Maybe this is in some of the Abrahamic texts, too. But then the Quran says you can basically have sex however you want. You can enter your wives however you please, which I don't know. It it just was funny to me that that was in there. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Maybe that was a way to get more converts, right? It's like, oh, we can. This is so bad. But it's like, oh, we can do a doggy (laughs) style now. Awesome. (laughs) This religion is great.
1: (laughs) And there's the controversial quote for this oh, yeah, uh, episode. That's, there we go. Oh, we got a couple. We had the the couple. The, uh, the cryo one. <laughs> yeah,
0: we we got to keep it interesting.
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but that was, it. that was a bit of a surprise to see that in there. <laughs> but yeah, it was, I do imagine people like that. It does
0: reflect some of the, for lack of a better term, humor in the Quran, which is that there are these parts where it feels like God is saying, don't be stupid. Why would that be true?
1: or why would god care about that?
0: Yeah, why would god care about that, right? It's like, no, just have sex however you want. I don't care, right? Like we've got bigger things to deal with. Yep. And that was how I that's how it feels about the Jesus being the son part too, right? Which I think we'll get to a little bit later, but it's really just like, why would why would god have a son? I'm god, right? Right.
1: <laughs> right, and and they almost I mean they are using logic to or I guess god is using logic to deconstruct that, right? I think there's a part where I uh, or god says you know, how would that have even happened? Yeah. How would I have had a son? <laughs> like, who would I have had it with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there is a lot of that in here that was, you know, like made it more readable and, and funny too, in some parts.
0: Especially with the footnotes explaining it. Because there, there were a couple of those where once they explain, it's like, huh, okay, that's it's <laughs> kind of entertaining.
1: Yeah. And then I, I think uh, skipping ahead slightly to the eating part. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like you're forbidden to eat carrion, carrion right? Yeah, carrion. Uh, blood, pig's meat, any animal over which any name other than God has been invoked, any animal strangled or victim of a violent blow or a fall, or gored or savaged by a beast of prey unless you slaughter it in the correct manner, or anything sacrificed on adulterous altars. You are also forbidden to allot shares of, of meat by drawing marked arrows, a heinous practice. uh so that was interesting, just because some of that actually seems very logical. Yeah, that you shouldn't do that. Um, well, yeah, a lot of it's actually pretty smart. <laughs> right, which is makes sense then.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you, it's still good advice. You know, don't eat the decaying flesh of dead animals. Don't right. eat an animal that's been, you know, crushed or fallen or gored or savaged by a beast of prey. Right, you're you're probably you're much more likely to get sick. Exactly, and. I looked this up because I was curious because there's this line, um, unless you slaughter it in the correct manner, right? But it doesn't say what the correct manner is. And I looked it up and apparently it's, you have to kill it as quickly as possible with an extremely sharp knife and has to be killed by a Muslim.
1: You know, one thing that's really interesting about that is I wonder, Mm -hmm. uh, how, if you strangle an animal or you kill it slowly, how much cortisol and other hormones are released during that process?
0: Yeah. So I've heard that's a big thing with hunting.
1: Yeah. So in what sense? If you shoot the animal wrong, so
0: it suffers and runs away, it ruins the meat, apparently.
1: Ah, interesting.
0: And you can like taste that it's that it just tastes different. And so it's probably much less healthy, too.
1: So I wonder if that was a part of it, too.
0: Yeah. Maybe they just knew from eating meat that had been killed poorly that it just tasted different and it made them suspicious. And so they just prescribed
1: against it. Yeah. And then I can imagine if you kill it really quick or with a very sharp knife, you know, it doesn't have like there's no struggle.
0: Yeah, there's no struggle. I mean, and that's how they tell you to kill an animal today, right? If you're going to yeah. slaughter something to eat it, is you know keep it calm and then very quickly slit its throat and let it bleed out.
1: Yeah, well, and that's that might be one of those things that uh, people knew in practice but didn't know the theory of exactly until way later.
0: There's something we jumped over though. I want to go back to, uh, which I think is another one of the tough passages from the book, especially squaring it with modern beliefs and ideas. So there's two parts to this. I'll just read the section. If any of your women commit a lewd act, call four witnesses from among you. Then if they testify to their guilt, keep the woman at home until death comes to them or until God shows them another way. If two men commit a lewd act, punish them both. If they repent and mend their ways, leave them alone. God is always ready to accept repentance. He is full of mercy. So there's this prescription for... And I, it's hard to know what exactly it means if a woman commits a lewd act. Is that premarital sex of any kind? I, I'm not really sure what it
1: means. Is it that? Is it lesbian, you know, like lesbian sex or something? Lesbian or? sex,
0: right. The, the one about two men is fairly clear, right? Is that gay sex is basically uh, worthy of condemning to... I guess it doesn't really say how you should punish them. It just says punish. But it says that for the women... You should keep them at home until death comes to them. Right. Right. So it sounds like it's saying that you have to kill them if they commit a lewd act. And it sounds like that's what they're saying for two men too. And the only way out is for them to repent and mend their ways, I assume, in in the eyes of God through Islam.
1: Right? Yeah. And where does where does the stoning part come in, right? Because like you see that in a lot of society, like very especially like fundamentalist Arabic societies. Like Saudi Arabia. I
0: think that's Old Testament.
1: Okay. Well, so is that where they're getting? It? So what I always thought was that was the punishment that was done at the time. And then mm-hmm. they just stick to that interpretation. Or not interpretation, but that practice.
0: Yeah, that could be it too.
1: Uh, if that's what punishment meant, then you continue with that. Um Yeah, because you, you do hear those reports from time to time, right? In like Saudi Arabia or, you know, like other like certain other countries as well.
0: Yeah, it probably was the practice.
1: It is interesting though that there's a way to still get left alone even if you're gay in this right i mean i guess you're i guess you're mending your ways
0: yeah that really stands out in the book is basically anything you do wrong if you repent and you know beg for mercy from god and accept islam then you're it's all forgiven
1: right probably another good way to get converts
0: yeah i suppose you know yeah because if you catch someone in a lewd act and you say like well we're gonna stone you to death unless you convert and beg for mercy then they're probably going to at least give a show of doing it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's also interesting that they didn't say if two men commit a lewd act, like kill them.
0: Right. It just says punish.
1: Yeah, and if they repent and mend their ways. So I mean, obviously, you know, they don't—they're not saying, yeah, it's fine to be gay as long as you're Muslim, <laughs> right? That's not what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a totally different thing. Um, but it's still interesting that, especially given the time period that this was, and in particular what it says in the line right before about women. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's shockingly um, forgiving to gay men. Yeah. I think that's what the two men commit a lewd act means, right? I mean, that what else could it mean? It must be.
0: I don't know what else it would mean. Yeah. Yeah, there's another section a bit on going back to the fighting that is, again, just sort of another tough piece, right, uh, on, on that whole theme. And I think the biggest part of it is, you know, one, there's this call for kind of proselytizing, saying that prepare whatever forces you believers can muster uh to frighten off god's enemies and yours and warn others unknown to you but known to god and then this idea that whatever you give in god's cause will be repaid to you in full and you will not be wronged so it's i think it's this idea that the more you give in fighting for the religion the more you will get back or that seems to be the prescription there and again it Kind of getting to how this may have been able to spread so quickly, it says, when the four forbidden months are over, wherever you encounter the idolaters, kill them, seize them, besiege them, wait for them at every lookout post. But if they repent, maintain the prayer, and pay the prescribed alms, let them go on their way, for God is most forgiving and merciful. So it's a really kind of simple choice if you're living in the area. It's like you're either going to be hunted down and killed, or you can join the religion. Right? It's almost like it's designed to spread as quickly and effectively as possible.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, and yeah, I mean, that seems to have played out like it spread super quick. Yeah. Have you ever seen that map that just shows the territory that Islam covered? No.
0: It sounds interesting, though.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, going back to this idea of like,
0: maybe you don't like fighting, right? It, it says a little bit later on that we did not wrong them. They wronged to themselves. Their gods, which they called on beside God, were no use to them when what your lord had ordained came about, they only increased their ruin. And so there's kind of a absolution of guilt in participating in this fight, right? It's like, you're not doing anything wrong. They did the wrong thing, and you were just carrying out God's will, right? which if you need to just rally tons of people who are not fighters to support the cause, these are all very effective ideas for doing that.
1: Definitely, definitely. And then also get rid of, any if anybody has lingering guilt, right, that right. maybe this isn't right um you know they won't feel guilty about it
0: actually there's another bit we skipped over a little bit on the um the jesus as the son so here
1: oh yeah
0: Uh, people of the book do not go to access in your religion and do not say anything about god except the truth the messiah jesus son of mary was nothing more than a messenger of god his word directed to mary a spirit from him so believe in god and his messengers and do not speak of a trinity stop this that is better for you. God is only one God. He is far above having a son. Everything in the heavens and earth belongs to Him, and He is the best one to trust. And this is where I, this is the first part of the book that I remember, where we start to see more of a separation from Christianity and Judaism, where it starts to really call out, actually more so Christianity. I don't remember seeing anything kind of anti-Jewish. Right? It's really more that Christians are just wrong about Jesus, and so yeah, they need to recognize that they are wrong and accept Muhammad. Right. And instead, or else they will be punished.
1: Yeah. Or maybe not even accept Muhammad, but accept yeah, accept this faith and, and stop saying that Jesus was the son of God.
0: Right. And that there's some Trinity and like, no, there's just God.
1: And they always say son of Mary. Mm-hmm. They always make sure to say that. Like they never say son of God, obviously.
0: <laughs> yeah. Going back to your thing about stoning, right? There, there's a section later on about adulterers and adulteresses. And it's interesting here because it says adulteress, not woman committing a lewd act. So I wonder if lewd act before was lesbianism. It's hard to say, but it says strike the adulteress and the adulterer 100 times. So it's a prescription for men and women, right? Anybody who's having sexual relationships outside of marriage or with slaves, which we'll come back to, uh, yeah. is committing adultery. But it says do not let compassion for them keep you from carrying out God's law if you believe in God in the last day and ensure that a group of believers witness the punishment, the adulterer is only fit to marry an adulteress or an idolatress, and the adulteress is only fit to marry an adulterer or an idolater. Such behavior is forbidden to believers. So it sounds like it's saying that even if it's your children, right, you need to beat them and kind of cast them out and treat them as unfit to marry any other believers for their life, right? And going back to what you were saying at the beginning, this is a you know, again, a strong way to cement the integrity of the religion, because if you think that you'll be beaten and cast out for having any kind of relationship outside your marriage within the faith, then it's almost impossible for it to spread to your children, right? Yeah. It's almost impossible for anything but the religion to spread to your children.
1: Exactly. And I bet all you needed was a couple examples of people following this. Mm -hmm. or even if they weren't real right if like even if you just knew that oh there's so-and-so's friends cousins mom or something like cast out there right it's like just even an apocryphal story could still be enough to make people follow or believe this and as you said cement cement this belief in in society in islamic society
0: exactly the the next section is one that i think is again fairly politically relevant yep because I think this is where we get to the prescription for women covering their bodies Um, so i'll just read from the text here it says tell believing women that they should lower their eyes guard their private parts and not display their charms beyond what it is acceptable to reveal they should draw their coverings over their necklines and not reveal their charms except to their husbands their fathers their husbands fathers their sons their husbands sons their brothers their brothers sons their sisters sons their womenfolk, their slaves, such men as attend them who have no desire, or children who are not yet aware of women's nakedness. They should not stamp their feet so as to draw attention to any hidden charms. And then there's a, a footnote here because there's that one line not display their charms beyond what it is acceptable to reveal. And I think that's where a lot of the interpretation comes in. And the footnote says that the phrase is actually ambiguous in Arabic too. And so recourse is commonly made to the hadith, which. Uh, says that it's permissible only for women to show her face and her hands in front of strangers. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's where, or that's obviously where that practice comes from. And it's interesting to see how it can be interpreted differently, how much it's played out. And then also, yep. you know, in in reading it, it feels like it's a prescription in order to prevent sexual attraction from men. That seems to be the context that it's coming up in.
1: Yep, that got my attention too, where it says that that last part where they said um, they should not stamp their feet so as to draw attention to any hidden charms. I took that to mean dancing. Uh, I don't know if that's misinterpretation.
0: Yeah, that's probably... I mean, that's a great interpretation, even if that's not how most people read
1: it. Especially if you think this passage is about sexual desire, Yeah, right? It's like that's... I mean, dancing is always associated with sex, so...
0: Yeah, and it's really clear that this is about hiding enough of yourself so that men don't, you know, behave sexually towards you, so they're not sexually attracted to you. Right. As it says you can, basically, you can only reveal yourself to people who would not be sexually attracted to you.
1: Yeah. But I, I think the one thing that's important to look at here is what that word beyond what ordinarily shows would mean. Yeah. So the Hadiths, as far as I'm aware, I think those are just like traditional... Uh, Okay, Hadith in Islam refers to the record of the words, actions, and the silent approval of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. So it's not part of the revelations, but it's basically as it was practiced in his lifetime, it seems like.
0: Yeah, the prophetic tradition.
1: Yeah. So the interesting thing about that, right, is it creates this intersection between the culture and time that they lived with the Quran, Right. Or with the religion. And some of that stuff. Right. So if you if you read it as beyond what ordinarily shows, that's a very cultural that could be a cultural interpretation. You could say, okay, well, today, this is what we ordinarily show. Yeah. And then in 2018, you ordinarily show a different thing. Right. And so it's basically saying don't go beyond that. Like just do like the normal, you know, whatever, whatever is the ordinary. Don't go. Don't go beyond that. Um, which in 1950 meant something very different than 2018, for example, right? Yeah. So it could say ordinarily, you know, beyond your culture, or it could mean beyond what they showed in, you know, whatever year this was. <laughs> beyond what his wives showed. Exactly. So there's, and you could see again, why, you know, I mean, you could interpret that two different ways and you wouldn't necessarily be wrong either way.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're a, a Muslim woman reading this, you could interpret it as having to wear the full burqa or just dressing like a normal American
1: woman. Right. And you could still be compliant with the Quran, like either way, depending on your interpretation.
0: It's definitely a big cultural element here, though. Right. Yeah. Because I I mean, I think part of the unfortunate situation is that, you know, especially in more Islamist dominated areas, I imagine many of the women are wearing the full burqa or, you know, to some extent of it, not just because of their own religious devotion, but because, you know, it doesn't actually say what the prescription is for a woman who doesn't do it here, but there's certainly some punishment.
1: I'm sure. Yeah. For not following this prescription. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's most definitely about sexual desire because it says for older women or elderly women, right? Yeah. No blame will be attached to elderly women who no longer have any desire if they take off their outer garments without flaunting their charms. But it is preferable for them not to do this. God is all hearing, all seeing.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I, this one I felt like is pretty, I don't know, you see some people arguing that it's just a sign uh, or that it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? The the women covering themselves for Islam. But as as I read this, it really does feel like it's a prescription that, you know, if you don't do the, you know, that you have to hide your attractiveness. Um, it doesn't exactly say why, but it does seem like a... Prescription that you, you know, can't, you don't want to attract the attention of any men who aren't your husband, right? Which isn't, I guess, necessarily a bad thing, but it is very, I think, subjecting of women, right? Yeah. It creates a very clear boundary between men and women. And it says, you know, women are essentially inferior and need to hide themselves and just be subservient to their husband and only show themselves around him and you know their relatives and that you know it's hard to interpret that as anything remotely pro-women right
1: yeah and it seems in some ways victim blaming as well right I mean they're, oh, as yeah. you said they don't say yeah they don't say why right you need to do this but I mean it seems to imply that otherwise bad things would happen you know noting the tone of this the rest of this book
0: yeah it, it definitely <laughs> does kind of suggest that or right? it's like if a woman is raped it's because she was displaying her charms right it's not the man's fault
1: yeah or if she was doing that when she was raped it's like definitely it, it would be considered her fault according to this which exactly yeah i mean that's what it seems like at least according to this so i mean that's a hard thing to reconcile with modern beliefs but i mean that we definitely we definitely see that in other cultures as well but yeah that seems to be what it says here is that if you know if you're showing your charms and something happens like should have known better and yeah you know it's definitely hard to reconcile with our you know with our society today
0: yeah i don't know. I, I don't want to spend too much time harping on it. i just thought that one was interesting because it was an interesting one yeah yeah of the political debates around islam that one seemed the most cut and dry to me it's like no this is definitely a sexually motivated way to keep women in line right at least from you know again from reading the book
1: yeah, reading the book and then also the, um, I guess, the interpretation or the translation, right? Or I guess not the translation, the, the uh, practice mm-hmm. of that passage. Because like, I, you know, we per, we view that passage as saying um, you need to wear like a barqa, right? And and cover your whole body. But as we said, right, that doesn't, it might not mean that depending on your, your interpretation of it. Um, and I have heard the Hadiths are like a lot of the practices are actually from the Hadiths and not from The Quran
0: yeah well I I imagine that would be a place to look for any of these confusing interpretations
1: right right or like the stoning or some of these things maybe that's in there
0: yeah prophet says you have to punish the adulterer and adulteress but how do we punish them it's like well let's look at what he did during his lifetime
1: yeah I wonder if that's a big a big part of especially uh literal interpretation I'm guessing that's that's used a lot yeah I suspect it is yeah because now we're kind of at that point in the in the Quran, where it started getting repetitive.
0: <laughs> but yeah, this is definitely where it starts to get, like we mentioned before, kind of repetitive. I don't think there's too much else to touch on. So there's one thing that I just thought was interesting, is there's a line here that says, so celebrate God's glory in the evening, in the morning, praises due to him in the heavens and the earth, in the late afternoon and at midday, which sounds like four times, right? Evening, morning, late afternoon, midday. But there are five prayers so I wonder where the fifth one came from. Now, I did a little searching and I couldn't find a good answer, but maybe it's just another thing from the Hadith, right?
1: Mm, yeah, maybe he added a fifth one Yeah, somewhere. That's a really good question. What are the five times? Actually, I'm not familiar.
0: The one that's missing is, I think, an early morning one. So,
1: so it's kind of like early morning, mid-morning, midday, late afternoon, evening.
0: Yeah, I think that's how they split out. Hmm. Yeah, I remember because when I was in Egypt, the first one happens at sunrise. Oh wow. Okay. And so and I was there, I think I think I was there in the summer. And so it would be at like five thirty in the morning. And it since there's mosques everywhere, you hear it everywhere. And so you're Right. So there's that whole call to prayer thing, right? Exactly. You're lying in bed and then there's just a full volume call to prayer coming in your window at five thirty in the morning. It's just like, oh my god. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good way to yeah, good way to get a good sleep schedule going. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was kind of interesting, but yeah, that was interesting. I want. I mean, it might be a hadith. I'm curious about that. If somebody knows who's listening, uh, you know, let us know. That's something it doesn't seem obvious from here.
0: Yeah. There's this one other element here that goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning about the burden of proof, which is on everyone else except for you know Muhammad or God or Islam, because I guess again he's being challenged, right? And then there's this line. In the Quran, that says, You, prophet, are not, by receiving God's grace, a madman. You will have a never-ending reward. Truly, you have a strong character, and soon you will see, as they will, which of you is afflicted with madness. Your Lord knows best who strays from his path and who is rightly guided. And a little bit later, So I swear by what you can see and by what you cannot see, this Quran is the word spoken by an honored messenger, not the words of a poet, how little you believe, nor the words of a soothsayer, how little you reflect. This Quran is a message sent down from the Lord of the worlds. If the prophet had attributed some fabrication to us, we would certainly have seized his right hand and cut off his lifeblood, and none of you could have defended him. So it's saying a few things at once here, right? One, the prophet's not crazy. Two, these are the words of God, not the words of a poet. And three, the prophet cannot attribute any fabrication to God, right? It is a perfect recitation of what God is saying, because if Muhammad said anything wrong, uh, God would have reached down and cut off his lifeblood.
1: Yeah, which makes it way easier to go with the uh, literal interpretation.
0: Yeah, I think it makes the whole work much stronger.
1: Yeah, there's no room for somebody to say, oh, this isn't what he meant, right? Because there are passages here that are saying that basically if it wasn't 100% accurate, then Muhammad would have been... Would have been killed.
0: Yeah, would have had his hand cut off or killed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's interesting, though. I mean, it's like it becomes very airtight when you have stuff like that in there.
0: Exactly. It makes it much harder to interpret.
1: Yeah. And it's not like a constitution in that sense where you can add amendments and say, oh, well, now we want to change this and make it more flexible. Yeah. It, it's just it is it is the like the text is what it is at that point. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure he, you know, like nobody was uh <laughs> at this point in time, nobody was thinking about what it would mean in 2018. Right. So it was, a moot point but it is interesting right I mean, I mean this is something i'd want to talk i'd love to hear from a an actual scholar yeah but like how does that work when they're actually preaching about the religion right like how do they talk about some of these passages to people who are you know following the faith be very curious
0: yeah it would be interesting to learn more about maybe future follow-up episode
1: yeah or google rabbit hole
0: yeah exactly <laughs>
1: Because I'm sure, like, think about it, like, I'm sure they have their version of, like, Sunday school or something, right? So, yeah, I'd imagine this is one of the first questions that people would, like, not not this in particular, but a lot of these questions we've brought up, I'm sure that comes up, you know, fairly early on, like, the first time someone reads it.
0: Yeah, I would have to.
1: Yeah. We're good at asking questions, but we're not that good. <laughs> we're not uniquely good.
0: Not uniquely good, no. But I think maybe the last section we should just quickly read is the very last Sora, because it's one of the shortest ones, and... According to the prophet, it was equal to one third of the entire Quran. And so I'll just read the the Sora. It's in the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy, say he is God, the one God, the eternal. He begot no one, nor was he begotten. No one is comparable to him.
1: That is actually a good summary of a good chunk of it.
0: It is. Yeah, I mean, that, that's <laughs> It's right? definitely the most repeated and most discussed themes in the entire book. And if you're just looking for one piece of the message to remember, I think that's a fairly
1: important one. Yeah, definitely.
0: I'm glad we did this. Same. I'm glad we we read it and covered it. It was pretty interesting. You know, I I won't lie. It's very boring at parts for anyone who's considering reading it. Yeah. It does get very repetitive. Like we said, there's probably at least 30 surahs that are just a repetition of believers are going to heaven and, you know people who don't believe are going to hell i think they describe paradise at least 50 times right uh, and it's basically the same description every time <laughs> so there, there's a lot of repetition but again it, it, one it's oral tradition and two it's meant to be recited right and any you know if you're going to mosque and you're hearing you know a Surah in isolation maybe you do need to have parts of the core message repeated frequently you almost certainly do all right so if you're thinking of it in that sense.
1: Exactly. It makes a lot more sense when you think about it in the context of, of how it's actually re- relayed and how it's learned. Exactly. But I'm really glad we did this. Like, yeah. you know, obviously we have a ton of questions, tons of gaps in our understanding. Um, so if anyone listening to this has studied the Quran, you know, in more detail um, or has good resources for us to look at when we go down our Google rabbit hole, just send them over. We, uh, we really like reading that stuff and... Now uh, maybe we'll do a follow up episode on this at some point.
0: Yeah, and I, it'd be nice to hear from people too what they thought of us doing a religious text episode because obviously there are a lot of other ones we could do as well. Right? We could do something like the Ramayana, we could do obviously Old and New Testament, we can do Tao Te Ching. Uh there's like a lot of stuff in that vein we could cover. So I'd be curious to hear what people think of that idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and obviously we are not qualified to <laughs> you know, really speak on the, (laughs) on the Quran, but, but our, yeah, I think at least my hope uh, and I think yours as well. Nat, was, you know, we wanted to give you kind of just our interpretation of it and selfishly, we wanted to read this book ourselves and see what it's all about. Um, And you kind of heard our reactions on the spot. We hadn't, we hadn't really talked about it beforehand of, you know, what the points are. We just kind of, these are, these are what we, Um, These are things we were thinking about as we read the book and uh, you heard the discussion live.
0: Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, we deliberately don't discuss the books with each other before the episode for the most part. We we have our notes and we're taking all of our notes and stuff, but we will occasionally be tempted to start talking about them. And then we'll cut ourselves off and say we should save it for the episode just so we don't don't spoil any of the conversation. So,
1: yeah, because you can't fake it. Yeah, it'd (laughs) it'd be hard
0: to fake. And that's why there's so much, I think, jumping around during the episode, too, is it. It's a fairly natural discussion of what we took away and took notes on from the books. So yeah, this is a different type of book to do, but I thought it was pretty interesting. I think it made for a good discussion. We're well over two hours now, so we obviously had plenty to say.
1: Yeah, I would say other than that, you should definitely join the Patreon if you're not there yet, because we had some good bonus material from this episode too.
0: Yeah, we had great bonus material today. Solid 20 minutes. Uh, A decent chunk of it was about an episode that'll come out in... A month and a half or so, because we just got advanced copies of a book we're really excited about. So we we're talking about that a bit, and
1: talk about some movies.
0: Yeah, some movies, some uh, other podcasts, just like good, you know, warm up conversation. Bonus material. Uh, you also get our detailed notes. So if you're curious, everything that we highlighted and bolded and stuff from the Quran, you'll get that for this episode. You'll get all of our past show notes right so you get access to everything up until this point all of the past bonus material and everything uh and you'll get you know heads up on upcoming episodes if you join the uh the the premium patreon tier you'll get to join for our next monthly hangout which uh, those are a lot of fun we've done two now or at least by the time you hear this we'll have done two
1: yeah first one went really well the second one uh Remains to be seen. <laughs> Who knows? I'm sure it will
0: go well too. But
1: <laughs> Yep. Exactly. Yeah,
0: and, and you know, on top of that, it's a fun place to talk to us about the episodes. We can't respond to everyone on Twitter, but we try to respond to everyone in the Patreon group. So it's it's just like a nice conversation portal. And, you know, it helps support the show. It uh lets us continue to do this without burning too much of our own money on it. it helps us uh pay Andres for his amazing work putting this together for you all. And yeah. It's just good, good validation. We're doing something that you enjoy. So you can find that at patreon.com slash made you think.
1: Thank you to everybody else who, who already joined. Oh, yeah, of course. There's a good chunk of you guys. And
0: you're our true friends.
1: Uh, I guess other than that, you can leave a review uh, on iTunes in particular as we try to get more guests on the podcast. Uh, that's where people look to see if we actually have any listeners.
0: Yeah, it's very helpful.
1: Yeah. So that's a really helpful place. Um, thank you to everybody who's already done that and, and is doing that. Um, we really appreciate that. And uh, I guess let's see. Last but not least, you can go to made dot com for the show notes. And then also uh, you can click the support link over in the top right hand corner where there are other ways to support the show other than the Patreon. And you can do that even if you're part of the Patreon. You can support the show in other ways, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, like we said, tell your friends. That's the main way this show has grown since its inception is just.
1: Word of mouth. So if you Inception uh, that came up in the that came up in the uh, bonus material. It did. Uh, <laughs> Little teaser. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: uh <laughs> yeah, no, tell your friends. Uh we love being recommended to people, obviously. <laughs> it, it helps the show grow. And uh yeah, I mean we're the show has grown a lot this year. It's gotten quite a bit more popular as the year's gone on, nice and up and to the right, and that's thanks to all of you who are sharing it with your friends. So Definitely do that.
1: And if you hated this episode, definitely tell everybody in the world about it. Like, shout really loud. Tweet
0: about it. Everything. Make us go viral with your anger. We will appreciate yes.
1: it. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll appreciate it. So, um, yeah, I think other than that. Oh, yeah, I would say, uh, you know, we love hearing from you guys on Twitter. And especially with this episode, since it's our first time doing one of the, you know, the Abrahamic religions uh, or any religious book, actually. Right. I don't think we've actually done an actual source text.
0: Yeah. I think that's
1: right. Yeah. We've done power of myth. We've done uh way of Zen, but none of those are our source texts. So, right. Yeah. I'd love, I think we'd both love to hear
0: any feedback
1: thoughts. Yeah. Rage. Um, You can find me on Twitter at the rail Neil S
0: and I am at Nat eliason. So
1: yeah. Tell us what you thought. If you loved it, hated it, what we were unqualified to talk about <laughs> that we still attempted to talk about. <laughs> Uh, You can rant at us there.
0: And with that, I think we did it. So thank you all for joining for this episode of Made You Think. And we'll see you next week.
1: See you guys next week.